The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. And today, we're doing an interesting interview in our first half. We're talking about a novel with a purpose behind it and with a way to really help our listeners today. My guest is Charles Subi, and he is the author of the book, A Shot of Malaria. And again, it is a novel. Charles Subi is an author and an improv actor based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And his book unfolds the twisted story of a young man, Daniel Martin, desperately hooked on heroin, alcohol, and his own delusions. Set in San Francisco in the 90s and written as deadpan first-person narrative, the novel captures the ugly realities of addiction with sharp, ironic humor. And it's really been described as the catcher in the rye for the turn of the 21st century. Welcome, Charles. Hi. uh, Thank you, Patricia. I'm really glad to be here with you. Why did you choose this subject? We know it's a novel form, but this whole subject of alcohol and drug addiction, why did you choose this for your novel? Well, uh, there's uh, actually a few reasons. One is uh, personal experience. Um, And secondly, well, there's actually several. Uh, Secondly, uh, what I kind of wanted to do is put a human face on the disease of addiction, because typically in, um, in film and literature, it, it tends to be sort of almost a cliche character, uh, you know, the robbing banks, um, you know, almost like, uh, uh, what was that uh, old movie? Um, anyway, whatever, Reefer Madness. And, um, mm-hmm. But what I want to do is to, to make almost an ordinary character you know, which I think kind of depicts the disease more uh, accurately, that it's, you know, it could be anybody, somebody in the office, um, you know, a neighbor down the street. And that, just, I mean, in this case, actually, Daniel, it isn't really hidden. You know, I mean, it's really uh, mm. apparent. But in his, his mind, he thinks it's hidden. Yeah. Now, and, now, the character, the main character is searching for love while right. battling drug dependency. Can you right. find love in, as an addict? And I think the question is, can you find healthy love as an addict? Yeah, right. That exactly is the question. And, you know, I don't want to go out on a limb and say, no, you can't, you know, because I'm sure there's 100 people that would uh, dispute that. But I will say it's very difficult because, you know, if there's no sense or understanding of what's going on internally with a person, such as like with myself, let me put it that way, uh, you know, it would be really difficult to try to be able to be honest, you know, in a relationship with, with another person. 
uh, you know, that self-dishonesty, I think, kind of precludes anything healthy in love. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. So it's the honest because you're not being honest with yourself is what you're saying. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, so you have a immediate handicap, uh, you know, going in. It's like trying to run a, uh, a race with one leg. Mm-hmm. So how, how is that dealt with in the book? in terms of how uh, this man really deals with it and battles with it and actually, you know, comes out ahead. Well, he comes out ahead when, it, when you know, essentially when his ego gets crushed, when he no longer mm-hmm. has room to move, he's sort of checkmated in a spiritual sense. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, all of his uh, delusions drop and he's just willing to go, you know, to do anything that it takes in order to, um, you know, step out of that existence. You know, he, mm-hmm. sort of, he pretty much lets go of his identity and, and allows for something else to um, take over. Okay. Interesting. Now, you chose San Francisco, and, mm-hmm. you know, San Francisco certainly were major players in the 1960s drug culture. Right. Uh, is that why you chose the city? Well, first off, I, I know the city really well. I lived there for about 25 years. So that helps a lot. And it's a beautiful city. It's a great place to set a story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, um, I mean, that culture, you know, it was romanticized in the 60s. And I think to a certain extent, the final vestiges of the romantic ideal died about the same time that the story is told. And, you know, his closest friend is a guy named Cody. Um, and, you know, Cody was a, the uh, character name for um, Jack Kerouac's friend, Neil Cassidy. Cody dies at the beginning of the novel, and I think there's sort of a sense that that whole dream, you know, kind of uh, evaporated at that point. You know, it was no longer it can no longer be held up as uh, you know a real, you know, possibility. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of political debate these days about decriminalization of certain drugs. As mm-hmm. a recovering addict, what are your thoughts about this? Um, you know, I, I've changed a lot. I had I, I was you know at a certain point when in, in early sobriety. Uh, I was just um, kind of really thought that, you know, um, legalizing drugs would just be enabling people. But I've kind of softened on that a lot. And part of it is, you know, the economics of it. I just think it, it costs a fortune, you know, to try to um, uh, enforce drug laws. And that money could be much better spent, you know, far mm-hmm. less money, much better spent treating uh, the addiction in other ways. Uh, so that's a big part of it. Plus, you know, I don't know that if it's even really serving um, you know, addicts to, uh, you know, to be locking them in jail, and certainly with mm-hmm. marijuana, which, you know, I mean, I think the general popular consensus seems to be that it should be... Uh, well, it's already being legalized in Colorado. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Now, how much of this story, and, I mean, you're saying that you're a recovering addict, how much of the story is your story, if any? Are you in here somewhere? Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh-huh. I know... Sure. I, it, first off, uh, I was a banjo player on the streets of San Francisco, which is what this character was. Uh, uh. I had three year, I spent three years on methadone um, and uh, hung out in bars in the Richmond district. And so to a certain extent, when the, when the story starts, it sort of starts as my story and then it takes on a fictional you know, life of its own. So, but, uh, you know, there's certainly my, peri- you know, personality in there. It's a, it's a deadpan character, you know, because uh, the character doesn't know a lot of things that the reader knows, you know, just like the character doesn't uh, know what I know now looking back, you know, to then. Yeah. 
What do you think, you know, we were talking before about um, decriminalization of drugs. What's your feeling about the effectiveness of methadone as a treatment for heroin addicts and other controversial drug-related issues? Yeah, okay. Um, you know, it didn't work for me. Um, you know, to certain, I mean, it kept me alive. So what can I say? Uh, you know, I'm here talking to you. I mean, I don't know if it kept me alive or if it hindered me. Um, it, uh, the, the problem is, is that it's, it's just such a strong drug. Um, you know, I mean, it really is. It's uh, much more addictive than heroin. And I believe the same thing, although I don't have experience it with the, um, the, uh, one that they're using now, uh, Suboxone. Um, so to a certain extent, you end up just becoming, um, it's, it becomes, oh, the whole point of it is the fact that you're going to be always be an addict. So they just change the drug that you're addicted to and they make it so mm-hmm. that it, um, you know, it does, it's not progressive and that you don't need more, uh, to, uh, achieve a certain state. And in that, I don't think it's, I think it becomes extremely difficult to clean up if you're on methadone. Um, So, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And yet there are so many clinics, you know, that that, uh, that people who are addicts go to for methadone. Sure. Yeah, it's big business. There's a difference, too, between methadone maintenance, which I was on for three years, and 21-day detox off of methadone you know, which I also did for a number of years before I got on maintenance. And the detox is actually like the detox, any kind of detox. Um, mm. But, I mean, the bottom line is if somebody has a true desire to clean up, there are ways to clean up. So it's not like, you know, I'm not blaming methadone. Yeah, for, uh, and I think that was my next question before we go to break. My next question is, you know, there comes a point, obviously, who people who are recovering that say, mm-hmm. I've got to change what I'm doing. And, I mean, right. it, does that point come, Charles, when you're at the very edge, you know, when you've, you've completely yeah. broken down? Or does it come before that? And, and what's the first step out? I mean, is it, is it a recovery group? Is it a 12-step group? Is it getting mm-hmm. support? Is it just, you know, kind sure. of cold turkey saying, I'm done? What is it? Or all okay, of that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> in the case of uh, Daniel in the, in the book, uh, what finally happens uh, for him, uh, he hits the bottom, you know, in which it just his life is untenable. Uh, but the other part is that he's been introduced by his uh, family um, uh, to an, uh, an alcoholic, actually, who's, um, you know, who's, who's clean and sober. He's been sober for a long time. And in that connection with the alcoholic, somebody that, you know, he can, who knows what he's doing, he actually can sort of see through his lying as well, see through the delusion, but he has actually walked from the disease out of the disease, you know, into sobriety. So, yeah, you know, and obviously that's what 12-step recovery um, does, you know, but it's that principle of, of one alcoholic reaching out to another. And so um, that really, know. really has helped a lot of people. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it, and I wouldn't say it's the only way, you know, I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't like to go out on a limb, uh, but it, I know it's a way that really, you know, it, it does work. You know, the idea of, of somebody that's been there, because it's, I mean, it's so, I mean, the, the level of lying, you know, speaking my own, you know, my own delusional head, you know, the depth mm-hmm. of the lying is such that, I mean, I can't, uh, you know, I couldn't see truth from, um, you know, uh, fiction. Um, you know, during inside the disease. So I needed somebody yeah. else that could get in there who actually knew from a personal yeah. point of view, somebody I could trust because right. their experience matched mine. And yet, and yet, you know, the, the life of a junkie isn't all darkness and pain, right? I mean, in the book, you write that there was some very tender and lighthearted moments, particularly of your characters. Right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's the putting a human face on it. 
you know, so that, uh, you know, that I, I just think it's really important to see that, that, you know, you have a human being, that, uh, you know, he's complicated. In some ways, he's very loving, uh, compassionate. In other ways, he lies, cheats, and steals. Uh, but he's, you know, it's a full-bodied uh, human being. Right. You know, All right, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more to Charles Subi. He's the author of the book, A Shot of Malaria. And we'll talk about the title when we come back. And uh, this is a twisted story of a young man, Daniel Martin, desperately hooked on heroin, alcohol, and his own delusions, set in San Francisco in the 90s. And again, it's been described as the catcher of the rye for the turn of the 21st century. Charles Subi is an author and improv actor in the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be back with him right after the break, right here on voiceamerica.com. I'm Patricia Raskin. Stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things. And together, you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now... We have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Hi, everyone. We are back. You are listening to Patricia Raskin Positive Living. And this is the second half of our first interview with Charles Subi author of A Shot of Malaria. This book has been described as the catcher in the rye for the turn of the 21st century. Charles Subi is an author and improv actor based in the San Francisco Bay Area. He recently completed a screenplay rendition of his widely praised first novel, Winifred. And this book unfolds the twisted story of a young man, Daniel Martin, desperately hooked on heroin, alcohol, and his own delusions, set in San Francisco in the 90s. All right, welcome back, Charles. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, as we said in the first part of this interview, you struggled with addiction for many years. How did your experience and recovery help you write this book? Well, it's, um, 
it, I had a, a much clearer. You know, it's funny. I thought about writing the book. Um, I had thought about writing a book, I should say, years ago, uh, when I actually when I was on methadone. It's very common for addicts to think that their life is sensational and that, oh, this would make a great book. And I, I used to call myself a writer, and other people would say, oh, you've got to write my story. And, you know, it really wasn't interesting. Um, but the hindsight and um, point of view that I got in my own life, you know, through um, recovery actually made not my story interesting, but the story um, interesting. You know, so that, uh, you know, I, I had sort of an understanding of, of the you know, workings of the mind, you know, and the delusion. And, you know, and, you know just basically in the way that relationships... Yes, it uh, becomes a very authentic story because you know, right, you've, exactly. really, you've been through it. Now, yeah. in addition to being an author, you're an actor. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your work, you know, as an improv actor. How does uh-huh. that, how has that helped you both as a writer and in recovery yourself? You know, it, it's helped me uh, in both uh, a lot. It's, it's helped me to develop like a, a faith that if I keep doing the next right thing, something will emerge. And I've had so many times, I write a lot of short stories now. And same thing with my novels. I come to this point where it's going nowhere and I just continue going. And then I don't even know what's going to happen until I get to a certain point. And then I look back and I see... You know, I see the direction the story is going. Sometimes just simply being in the moment. Um, for example, uh, in my previous novel, Winifred, I was stuck somewhere. And I didn't know how to get out of it. I was in a, ca- a cafe. A woman walked up to me and said, oh, hi, I had a dream about you last night. And I realized that moment that a dream sequence would have been the perfect segue in the, in the story. And that became it. And all of a sudden I had a whole, uh, you know, a whole other chapter uh, and, you know, direction. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. So, but um, okay, I was just going to say the principles of improv. You know, the way that I I was a student of a guy named Keith Johnstone who lives up in Canada, and the principles of improv. You know, are to uh, you know keep things simple, do the next indicated thing, don't try to be clever, um, and uh, the the fundamental uh, of improv is to tell the truth, and that not necessarily. necessarily what about having it scripted? I mean, should you know exactly what you're going to say? Oh no, absolutely not. Uh, it's 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 uh, spontaneous. That you re- you respond to what's happening around you, and mm. you take whatever's. There's uh, one of the things they say. There's no such thing as a bad offer. It, you know, you can't go up and say something wrong because it's uh, it's the next thing that mm. defines the thing that was said. So it's like this complete acceptance of the moment. Uh, you know, you have to. If you if you don't accept so, the moment so, in improv, you, you're killing it. So let me ask you, what's the difference between improv and being a stand-up comedian? A stand-up comedian typically um, has a set. You know, they have they know right. exactly they, where they're going. Okay. I mean, it okay. may have been improvised initially, but there is it's a you know it's a set, and usually it's uh, jokes. I mean, an exception obviously would be uh, Robin Williams, who was incredibly spontaneous. Mm. Um, you know, and his, his style of improv was different than what I'm learning. Uh, but I mean, it, it came from the same thing. He tapped a, uh, you know, an inner resource. And, you know, um, speaking you know, of that, speaking of that, I mean, you know, you understand recovery and you understand addiction, uh, you know, what do you make of what happened to him? I mean, I think I was shocked and very saddened and I know I'm not alone. I think the world was. 
Yeah, uh, it was tragic. You know, and he's from Marin County. I didn't know him personally, but I um, I have friends that knew him, and uh, it just uh, really? everybody was shocked. Um, uh, really, by that. nobody predicted this. No one would no. have known. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You know, and he, he was a, yeah, just you know, and he was a beautiful human being. I mean, he was involved yes. in a lot of great service. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, he was from the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, he was. You know, he was. He was really dedicated to the uh, community. I mean, I don't have enough uh, information, you know, to speak, you know, to the details of it. Um, other than that, it was just, I think, probably one of the saddest things uh, uh, collectively that people here have experienced, you know, in a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I guess that gets back to the whole question of. You know, how do we work with this if we are addicted or if we have family members that are addicted? What can mm-hmm. we do to help ourselves and help each other based on everything you've seen, Charles? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the most important thing is that, the, um, is that the alcoholic or addict has to be willing. And they have to really want to get sober, or at least want to want to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, for me, there was a confusion over, like, I didn't think I wanted to. Um, but it wasn't me that was thinking, you know, the disease wanted to, um, the alcohol, the, the alcoholism wanted the next drink. Um, but there has to be that kind of like a breaking point thing. And then uh, the, I think, uh, essentially just uh, directing somebody to, uh, you know, somebody else that knows, uh, you know, knows about it in a personal way. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, my family, um, you know, begged me to, um, change and I couldn't do it because, uh, you know, because they're, they're help which was sincere wasn't enough to um you know really get to me um and the same thing you know with the uh, professionals before i was ready you know when i was ready then it, you know that was different i mean i had even had a doctor who told me he didn't think i was going to make it and i was thinking well what does he know he's just a doctor so you know that's that's the extent of where um you know where that thinking is so uh, yeah, I think the most important thing is to to get somebody to somebody else who's been through it and uh, and experienced it and walked out of it. The only real experience I've had with this is I have a wonderful friend, and I recently visited her out of state, and mm-hmm. she's had an alcoholic issue for a while, but she hides it well. Uh, but what yeah. I noticed was when she drinks, she gets not only belligerent but almost as though she can't move. I mean, it's now affecting her physically to the point where she starts to fall down and stubble and hurt herself. And um, I was there recently, and her husband had found some bottles, and she says things that just aren't true. It's very sad to watch, and yet it's frightening because she's so belligerent. And Uh I, I know, I'm sure that you've seen that, but, you know, the problem is you, you don't want, God forbid, somebody to die and hurt themselves before, it's almost as though she's going to have to crash. And that's what's sad. Right. Well, this, yeah, it's, you know, it's a family disease, too. And, you know, certainly um, an alcoholic should not be allowed to take other people down with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's where, you know, people, you know, there's a certain point where somebody has to protect themselves, you know, and they have 12-step recovery for that, you know, Al-Anon, um, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is it's just getting, getting a, a buffer, you know, so that, you know, that... Uh, yeah, because many times the loved one is afraid. They're afraid to right, do something. Right, of course. Yeah, and then it's understandable. I mean, you know, you, you, you love somebody and, um, you know, the, the first thought is if you cut them loose or don't enable them, that you're going to be responsible for them dying. And, you know, just that, 
it's it's just it's a tragic manifestation of the disease. It really is. I mean, it's terrible. You know, I, I didn't realize until well after I was sober the kind of effect I had on people. Right. Uh, you know that uh, I thought it was like a victimless crime, but it really isn't. So, in the last couple of minutes, what would, what's your advice for people listening to this who have a loved one who's got either uh-huh. heroin or a drug or any kind of an addiction, substance addiction, or for that matter, I, behavior addiction? What would you say? I think the first thing that a person should do if they are in direct um, contact with somebody like that is to protect themselves. I I really believe that. And that's the hardest thing to do because there's so much level of guilt, um, you know, in and around um, that. It's just, you know, it sounds selfish, but it really isn't. I mean, in fact, the the most help that one can do for an alcoholic um, is, you know, to protect themselves first. You know, to make sure, because I mean, then, I mean, truth is, again, you know, getting back to that idea of truth, um, the, the disease is uh, predicated on, you know, a certain amount of delusion. And, you know, being honest is, uh, you know, the, like probably the, uh, the pin that pops the balloon. So this Would is, you, you know, say I'm those, a, pe- go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I, I, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I also want to know your advice to those people themselves who are addicted and they feel like they're, they're kind of going off the deep end. Yeah, well, yeah, ask for help. Absolutely, that's the other thing, asking for help. Um, and be willing to accept it. Um, and I went through years of, in fact, it's in the novel, years for asking for help for the sake of hearing my voice say I need help. But ask for help and just be willing to uh, suspend disbelief and do what's suggested. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I think is really important. Wow. Uh, really know, there, there are, Go ahead. No, there, there, there are plenty of resources to do that. Uh, you know, there are plenty of people that are that are qualified and ready to help an alcoholic or drug addict, uh, you know, move forward. And twelve step groups as well are another resource. Step, yeah, there's exactly the twelve step groups are there for uh, you know any kind of addiction. And the key thing is to find something that uh, matches your own experience right. too. I think that's really really important. Okay, thank you so much, Charles. How can people find you in your book? Um, I have a website, charlesrsubi.com. And uh, the book's available on Amazon, uh, both in Kindle and uh, uh, paperback. You can also get in paperback on Barnes and Noble and uh, you know other um, you know book sites online. And uh, I'm doing a book reading in the Bay Area at Copperfield Books on Wednesday, July 15th at 7 o'clock p.m. It's on Fourth Street in San Rafael. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the program. It was, well, thank was you. really great. And again, it's charlessubi.com, right? S-O-U-B-Y. Right, exactly. All right. S-O-U-B-Y, All right, yeah. So All right, thanks. Stand line for a minute. All right, folks, okay. um, we're going to be right back with our second guest right here on voiceamerica.com. I'm Patricia Raskin for Patricia Raskin Positive Living. Don't go anywhere, but we'll be right back. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com.
The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.